Ten Commandments. Everyone's favorite passage. Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 this morning. Exodus chapter 20, and I've called it laying down the law. And many of you have said this if you have children. I'm going to lay down the law. We're going to have a meeting between you, me, and Jesus. And, uh, but what does that mean? And so while this may be a familiar passage to you, I want to challenge you this morning to ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten what the purpose is of God's law. So in Exodus so far, we have seen, chapter 1, Israel had become slaves to Egypt. They found themselves in Egypt, according to the providence of God. Uh, God saved them by sending them to Egypt, and now he's having to save them from the slavery of Egypt. Uh, God raised up Moses to deliver them from Egypt, chapter 2 through 6. And then Egypt was judged, and Israel has been delivered miraculously in chapter 7 through 11. And then chapter 12 through 14, there's a plague, a plague to the world and yet a blessing to the nation of Israel because they are delivered from Egypt, interestingly enough, by the blood of the Lamb as they celebrate Passover for the very first time. And then the death of the firstborn. The firstborn of all the Egyptians would die and that would mean the salvation of the Israelites being a foreshadow of the death of God's firstborn son so that we could be set free from the slavery of sin. And then they were baptized, chapter 12 through 14. There, all of these things take place, but then it ends, the culmination is they are essentially baptized through the Red Sea. They're brought through a place that should drown them, but they're brought from death into life, into this new land that God is sending them to. So then chapter 14 through 18, we see them, and actually that's a mistype, uh, it, it's chapter 15 through 18, they worship, there's a song of worship in chapter 15, they receive bread from heaven, the manna, which is a type again of God's provision of the bread of life, Jesus Christ, they receive water, but not from a stream, they receive water from a rock, interestingly enough, Jesus is the the cornerstone. He is the rock that we build our houses on. They receive water in the desert. They receive manna, the bread of life. And then they even receive godly advice for their leader, Moses. God provides everything that they need. And then in chapter 19, they're told, you need to get up, you need to wash your clothes, you need to get ready because God's getting ready to audibly speak to you as a nation. And in chapter 19, verse 9, God said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you. So Moses, I'm going to instruct you audibly, and all of the people of Israel are going to hear my words while I talk to you, that the people may hear when I speak with you and then believe your words forever. And so all of this is preparation for the next part of them becoming a nation. It's good. They've got food. They've got water. They've got a leader. But now they need a governing law that governs their relationship between them and God and governs their relationship between each other. And you all know that when the law is there, it's there to help us interact with one another 
civilly. It's called civil law. And so God's going to set that up for his people as well. So in chapter 20, verse 1, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So stop there. We got it really far, didn't we? He says, I I am going to all these words God spoke. So God spoke audibly. We already talked about, about that. So that they would believe the words of Moses, he made sure that they all heard the words of God. That's Everyone gets their authority from somewhere. And essentially, God is in front of the people commissioning Moses, saying, hey, you're the leader. I'm speaking to you. He's giving him authority. But then verse 2, the Lord tells them whose voice this is. Because you can imagine, they're hearing this voice. They might conjure up in their minds, well, this is one of the gods from Egypt. They, They might attribute this voice to some other god, some other leader. So the Lord reminds them specifically who is speaking in verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God. So number one, he says, I am the Lord. And he uses, we see Lord in all capitals in our translations, but it's the word Yahweh or Jehovah. And that word is actually not a noun. It's a verb. Did you know that? That God's name is a verb and not a noun. So what does that verb mean? It means... I am the becoming one. He would become for the Israelite nation whatever their need might be. He was going to be the supplier. And so I am the Lord, your God. There's a possession there, right? This is, he says, I possess you, but you possess me. They are each other's. I'm the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So I'm the Lord your God, but I'm also the Lord who did this. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. So there's a very specific relational aspect to what he's describing here. He's not saying what he does. He's saying who he is and what he has done for them already. This isn't some stranger's voice speaking to them. Now, what he's essentially saying to them is he's saying, I've been involved in your life before now. You just may or may not have known it. And I love that because in Psalm 139, the psalmist writes that before I was born, you knew me in my mother's womb. God's involved in our lives before we recognize it. And I love that because he's been taking intimate care of us before we could even think, before we even knew that we were a person or an individual. Before our parents ever met us, God knew us. And the nation of Israel is no different. And so, what was, he says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then he tells us what the land of Egypt was. He says, the land of Egypt was the house of bondage. Now, the word bondage should have a negative connotation. A slave. It was the land where you were slaves. I brought you out of that place. I brought you out of the land where you were servants to the king of that land. The house where you were slaves. Does that sound familiar? Maybe God would say that to you this morning. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of sin and slavery to sin. I brought you out from under the yoke of Satan. I brought you into my marvelous light, the kingdom of light. And so then, with this as the backdrop, 
he's getting ready to lay down what we call the Ten Commandments. And I don't know about you guys, but as an American, if somebody commands me or maybe mandates me to do something, I'm not a big fan. I don't like being forced to do something that I don't want to do. But he's not saying, hey, you people that are standing over there, do this. He's saying, hey, people, I'm your God. And remember, I'm the one who delivered you from slavery. So everything after that is going, hey, I delivered you from this bad situation, this terrible situation. And now I've got some things that I'm going to command you to do. He's going, obedience is going to be commanded. Obedience. And obedience is hard to receive unless you know that the person that's asking for obedience loves you. And so obedience is commanded, but it's being commanded by the God who rescued them from slavery. I don't know about you guys. I've never been a slave. But the Bible says that the borrower is the slave to the lender. So if you borrow money and you can't pay it back, and somebody pays it for you, if you've got a heart at all, you go to that person, you go, what can I do to say thank you? And, and depending on the circumstance, they might give you a list. But in the, in the case of this, God's saying, I delivered you from slavery. Now I want you to obey me. And what's interesting about that is that if you turn to 2 Corinthians in chapter 5 and verse 14, Paul writes, and I don't know about you guys, but I look at the Apostle Paul's life and I'm like, this guy was relentless in his obedience. He was relentless as a missionary. He was relentless as a pastor. He just, he didn't have any stop in him. He just goes, goes, goes. And so it's like, what, what compelled him to be such a radical follower of Jesus? Well, he writes it down. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 14. He says, it's the love of Christ that compels us. It's, it's not the obligation. It's the love. The love of Christ compels us. He says, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then we all died. And he died for all, so that those who live because of him should live no longer for themselves. Jesus didn't live for himself, neither should we. But instead, that they would live for him who died for them, and then rose again. So if Jesus died for you, it would make sense that you'd be willing to live for him, knowing what it cost him to be saved. But the question becomes, okay, so I've been saved from slavery, but for what purpose? If I've been saved from slavery, if I've been delivered from my captors or those who would make me their slaves, then what is the purpose? Well, I'm glad you asked. We've been saved from slavery for good works. And if you don't believe it, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Many of you can probably quote verse 8 and 9, where it says there, By grace you have been saved. Saved from what? Well, in the case of the Israelites, saved from slavery. Not to sin, but sin in the world for sure, and enslaved by their captors, their owners. And yet here he says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. In other words, you didn't save yourselves. The Israelites couldn't save themselves. But it is the gift of God. If you ever say this as a believer, God's never given me anything. 
Don't forget salvation. God doesn't owe us anything. He didn't owe us salvation. And yet he gave it freely as a gift to anyone who would receive it. But it's not of works, he says, lest any one of you should boast. And then he says in verse 10, maybe the verse that's less often quoted, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? (laughs) For good works. What are those good works? Jesus said to his disciples, his disciples said, how can we work the works of God? Of course, they're watching him perform miracles. They're watching him teach. How can we work the works of God? And Jesus said famously, believe the one whom he sent. Believe Jesus. And and so if we believe Jesus, we find out later that he's commanded certain things. It's not any different than the Old Testament, but we've been saved from slavery for good works. And so what are those good works? Well, let's start with the commandments. And, and so in chapter 20 of Exodus, verse 3, he starts with this often quoted list of commandments. But don't become too familiar with these commandments because Jesus came on the scene and a bunch of people had spent their lives fulfilling the commandments to the T. And yet, appearing to fulfill those commandments, they oftentimes missed the point because it wasn't about a law of good works. Remember, Ephesians chapter 2 said you can't save yourself by your works because if you could, you'd boast about it. It'd be all about you. But if it's the gift of God, then that means there's something more to it. So verse 3 says, you shall have no other gods before me. So what does that mean? Does that mean you should have no other gods in line ahead of God? Or does it, so it's not precedence he's talking about here. You shouldn't add God to your gods. What he's saying is, in presence, you shall have no other gods in front of me. Not in line, but in my presence. Can you imagine if we looked at marriage the same way that oftentimes we look at our relationship with God? Okay, I'm married to you but I've got these other women around me. I'm not married to them, uh, but they're very important to me. And so I'll be home later after I attend to them in whatever way. We would call that what? We'd call that adultery. And, And so the reality is he's saying, I'm a jealous God. I don't, there's no other room for other gods. Either I'm God or I'm not. So you shall have no other gods before me. You should serve me exclusively, wholeheartedly, just me. And you might say, well, that's not fair. I've got other things to do. But our lives are actually supposed to be revolving around God. Other things aren't supposed to revolve around us. If God is the first and foremost in your life, if he's the Lord, he should be Lord of all. Because if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. So then verse 4, he says, you, sh- you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, 
but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So you shall have no idols. Now, you might say, I've never carved an idol and set it up. But the, the purpose of idols, they were images to remind us, to remind people of the presence of God. Something that's tangible, something that's before my eyes so that I can remember that he exists. Uh, the phrase in the Greek is actually karamdeo, to live ultimately all the time in the presence of God, to be aware of his, his existence, to be aware of his interaction in our lives. But the problem with creating an idol or an image to remind us of him is no matter what we carve it of or create it from, it's going to be in an image that God isn't like. God describes him many times, himself many times as a, an eagle or as a servant or as an ox, but he's not any one of those things. He's describing pieces of his character using something that we can see so that we have something on earth to help us understand what he's like. But he says, don't carve any image because it's going to fall short of who I actually am. And the problem with idols is that eventually you start to bow down to them. You start to serve them. And if you don't think so, get yourself, for me, it was always my car. Get yourself something you really, really, really like. And how do you know if something's an idol to you? Well, if, if somebody else comes along and hurts it, you lose your mind. And that was me. My 1986 SS Monte Carlo, all black, looked like a Buick Grand National, except it was way better. It had T-tops, which are not great. They always leak. But it was shined up. Ironically, the only time I've ever lived on a gravel road in my entire life. It had centerline wheels, and I spent all my time and energy and efforts on keeping that thing just right. Now, somebody got in it, somebody messed with it, I got pretty upset because that's where my hope, my joy, my happiness was based on whether or not that car was in the right shape. And so idols are things that we serve. We give our money, we give our time, we give our talent to it. It becomes our priority. And then next thing you know, because I loved it more than I love God, I didn't care about the people that would mess with it. I cared more about the car than people. That's a problem, right? And so maybe for you, it's something else. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's, uh, you know, a certain book that you've always had or liked. Maybe it's a movie. Maybe it's a, a sport. Whatever it is, it's anything that we serve instead of God or serve. And, and, and so all that to say, idols, physical image that needs to remind us of God, it always indicates that we have a degraded spiritual state. And so God says, you have, shall have no other gods before me. And so <clears throat> Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says this, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. And in that case, he's talking about serving God and serving money. But either way, we can't serve two masters. And so if you try to serve two masters, you're always going to be frustrated. 
And so I think that sums up what's going on here. You shall have no other gods, and you shall not carve any images in the likeness or trying to carve the likeness of any god. Verse 7 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So what does it mean to take God's name in vain? I always grew up thinking that it meant that you use Jesus Christ as a cuss word. And while I do believe that that is saying his name in a vain way, it's, it's taking the meaning out of it. It's using it as a common word or to curse. It's not entirely the meaning of this passage. It doesn't mean cursing or a profane word, although that can apply. It means to take his name... And think about this as a, as a wedding. When you get married, uh, it doesn't always happen, but most of the time when Christians get married, they take on the last name of their husband in our culture. And so to take his name means to say, you're my husband and I'm your wife. So when you take the name of the Lord and you make him Lord, I'm now married to Christ, you might say, yet you don't let him be your husband, your leader. So to take his name, making him Lord, yet not letting him be the Lord of your life, is to take the name of Christ, to call yourself Christ's, to call yourself a Christian, and yet to live as if he doesn't exist. It's vain. If you know what the word vain means in the Old Testament, in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, Uh, Many times uh, King Solomon would say, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And the idea was smoke that rises up and then it disappears. Or uh, maybe a better would be a a soap bubble. You know, a soap bubble is something, but very easily it could be nothing because it's gone. It's hevel. That's the word in the Hebrew. And so to take his name and to make it really mean nothing. And, and I believe part of the problem in our nation is that we have called ourselves Christians so long and not actually lived like Christians for so long that to the secular world, it means nothing because to us, it means nothing. And so the question becomes, are you taking his name in vain? Have you taken the name of Christ and made it mean nothing to you? and to your family, and to your culture. And so why doesn't Christ have any impact on the world? But Because we've made him nothing, just by sheer fact that we don't obey him. And in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do the things which I say, or the things that I command? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood rose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing like a man is like a man who built his house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. So to hear the commandments, to not respond to them in obedience is being that man who said, hey, I'm built on the rock, but didn't really build on the rock. 
Well, what's going to prove that is when times get tough, you'll find out whether or not you built on the rock. Uh, Chuck Smith, who passed away in 2013, he was the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement. He says, if you aren't obeying Jesus, you're taking his name in vain. And so instead of looking at the culture and going, I can't believe they use JC as a cuss word. That's not what it's saying. If anything, the house of the Lord is breaking the commandment more than the world is. They, they don't know any better. We should. And so, uh, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it... You shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, nobody under your care. And so I want you to notice something I noticed this morning. He doesn't say you nor your wife. He says you. So if you have a wife, since you're one flesh, she's mentioned in you. If you have a husband, since you're one flesh, he's mentioned in you. But all that said, the Sabbath is actually a lot simpler than we make it. But at the same time, God established the Sabbath by showing it in his example. It says there in the next verse, verse 11, In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he hallowed it. He made it holy. He, he honors it. And so in like manner, we should do the same. At the pattern of six days of labor and one day to rest, God did it himself. So he, he thinks it's important. But what I want to point out is that it, it was never meant to be a burden. It was always meant to be a blessing. It's God-ordained for our sake, for the sake of our body, for the sake of our health, for the sake to replenish us. It's regular maintenance. Uh, many of you might skip the oil change on your car, but some of you are like, no, 3,000 and no more, no less, or 5,000, whatever it is now with synthetic oil. But in Mark chapter 2, in verse 27, there was a group that were very strong feeling about how the Sabbath was to be lived out. In verse 23 of Mark chapter 2, it says it happened that Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as, as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And then they'd mash them together. They'd roll them in their hands and then they'd, eat, they'd chew on it like gum. It was a way to eat wheat without having, you were basically harvesting and threshing. And then you were grinding it. And then you were eating it. You just did all of the harvest. You worked. That's the Sabbath. You broke it. You didn't consider it holy. And the Pharisees said to Jesus, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said, Have you never read? Which was sanctified sarcasm. Jesus was sarcastic. Uh, it was sanctified. It wasn't like my sarcasm to cut. But he was trying to get their attention. And he said, have you not read? Well, that's all they did. They read. But he's saying, have you not really paid attention? 
to what David did when he was in need and hungry. Remember, he was running from Saul and, and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the showbread, which was the bread of presence in the temple. And it's not lawful to eat except for the priest. They were the only ones meant to eat it. And also he gave some to those who were with him. So then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man. So if you're in here today and just a little bit of condemnation welling up in you because you feel like, well, I don't do that. I've broken one of the Ten Commandments. Welcome to the club. But also recognize it wasn't meant to be a burden if you're not fulfilling the commandment to keep the Sabbath holy, it's only harming you. You're not harming God. It, it was meant for you to be a blessing. So if you're not taking advantage of it, you should. Like, why wouldn't you? God's mandated or even, I would say, commanded and said, hey, I, get, I free you up. You can take off a day, a week, and not even feel bad about it. Many of us don't like to take a day off. We feel like we're being lazy if we don't take advantage of that day. But God says here that the Sabbath was not made for man. Excuse me, the Sabbath was made for man, not man. We weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for our benefit, our blessing. Now, does that mean that we're not commanded? No, he says he commands it very clearly here. But also I want to point out that the Sabbath is every day of the week. The Sabbath is to be practiced as we go. The beauty is that we can we can spend time with Jesus throughout the week. And, and I would encourage you to take one day a week, just based on what God did, and not work. It's hard. I know the world only keeps going because you keep going. But I tell you what, if you take advantage of this blessing, of this freedom in Christ, you don't have to do the Sabbath. But if you do, I guarantee your attitude will be changed throughout that day. The next day you go to work, you're going to be a new man or a new woman. Uh, your family, they'll start to be able to stand you again. If you're a workaholic, they probably can't stand you most of the time. Uh, there's so many benefits to, to just sitting still, and, and then you can actually look out and go, man, look at all the things God's blessed us with. There's thankfulness. There's worship that happens. And then when you start the week again, you can feel like you actually got a break and you can start refreshed and ready to go. So it was made for us. Now notice that commandment one through four was actually uh, written. It's all about our relationship to God. Every commandment after that, by the way, is about our relationship to other men, other women. And so when your relationship with God is right, the, uh, what do they call that? The vertical relationship, then the horizontal relationships are put in proper perspective. You notice that? Drawn across, horizontal, or excuse me, vertical. I always mess that up. And then the horizontal is right. So there's four commandments about our relationship with God. And then there are six about man's relationship with man. Verse 12. Now I'm going to try to put the gas on a little bit. So we can take communion. Verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So notice it doesn't say to honor them if or unless. 
It doesn't give a disclaimer. It says, honor your mother and your father. And this is even to those that have those mothers and fathers that you might think are not honorable or worthy of honor. He doesn't say anything about whether they deserve it. By the way, probably most parents don't. But God says, honor them. I've placed them in authority over you. And if you honor them, here's what will happen. Your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And you might say, what's that have to do with me? I am not going into the land. Well, I'm glad you asked. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2, the Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesian church, and he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Did you notice? It was the first commandment between man and man. He says, here's the promise that goes along with it, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. There's something that extends your lifespan if you'll honor your mother and father. And so we see here, verse 13, you shall not murder. Now, some of you might say, well, duh, it's even against our laws. You know, nobody's okay with murder, I I thought. Um, And then it says, you shall not commit adultery. So all of these are obvious things, right? Well, the people of Jesus' day thought they were obvious, and yet, because they hadn't physically murdered someone, because they hadn't physically committed adultery, they thought, we're nailing it. But then Jesus is always trying to get to the heart of the matter, because the heart of the matter is always the heart of the matter, the heart. I should say heart one more time, heart. So in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 21, Jesus said to those who knew this law and had committed their lives to fulfilling it, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say, well, who gives you the authority? They kept asking him. My father who sent me. He says, my teaching is not my own. I come to do the will of the father. He says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, rakah, well, what's that mean? Whoever says to his brother, you idiot, in anger, shall be in the danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in the danger of hellfire. It's serious. God cares about our attitude towards other people. So murder isn't just about the action. It's about the heart behind the action. Verse 27 of Matthew 5 says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I've heard... Uh, many times when I've read this verse, uh, there have been people that have said, well, doesn't that make everybody an adulterer? And I always say, if you're a guy, yeah, probably, because that's the only position I can speak from, but probably because man, God gave us eyes and he made girls pretty. And the next thing you know, your eyes wander and you've committed adultery in your heart according to Jesus. So now what? Well, apparently we all need... Jesus, 
to change our hearts, uh, to give us new desires, to help us to look away. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And then he says the same thing about the right hand. Well, here's the reality. Pluck out your right eye and you're still going to lust if you struggle with lust. Take off your right hand if it causes you to sin, but you're still going to sin. And so the point is God wants our hearts to be in it. And so verse 15 and 16, you shall not steal. What is stealing? Taking anything that's not your own. Let's not get over crazy with it. Uh, Verse 16 says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shouldn't lie about your neighbor. You shouldn't lie. You shall not lie. And if you do, you've broken the law. By the way, he doesn't divide it to white lies and then real lies. A lie is a lie is a lie. Stop justifying your sin. And then he says in verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Let's define covet. It means to yearn to possess or have. So you shall not yearn to possess or have your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. The apostle Paul, by the way, said that he was a Hebrew of all Hebrews and had fulfilled all the commandments until he recognized he had a problem with coveting. He yearned to have what other people had. So if you break one law in all of these 10, you've broken them all. You're a transgressor. Uh, Judgment is coming your way. So what are we to do with that? And so we need to pay attention to these laws because they didn't go away with Jesus, but they were never meant to justify us. And so as we kind of come towards the homestretch, the heart is the seedbed for all the actions prohibited by the commandments 7 through 10. And in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, uh, Solomon wrote, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. You, you want to know why you're doing the things that you're doing, even though they're against God's law? Because your heart is deceitfully wicked. Psalm 139, verse 23 through 24 uh, says, Search my God, search my heart, O God, and see if there be any wicked way within me. Test my heart and know me. God searches the heart. Man is always looking at the outward appearance and I'm doing the right actions. God doesn't care about the outward actions. He cares about the heart behind them. So then this is all summed up in Romans 13 in verse 8. It says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear fault witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. So to fulfill those commandments means to love God supremely and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love is the fulfillment of the law, true love. And so, what's the point of these commandments? And, and, and 
we're going to fast forward a little bit, but Jesus had a lawyer come to him and say, okay, what's the most important commandment? What's the greatest law? And Jesus said, uh, the first and most important is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. If you'll do that, your heart will be totally different. If you love him supremely, you're going to act like he wants you to act. Uh, But then the second six commandments are fulfilled in Matthew chapter 22, uh, verse 39, where he says, and then you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is the heart of the, if you do that, you'll fulfill all the law and the prophets. But notice their reaction to all of this. All the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning, the flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood afar off. They were scared. That's my interpretation. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. That's not the point. Don't fear. For God has come to test you. By the way, the law of God tests your heart. It exposes your heart for what it really is. And that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. The fear of the Lord, Proverbs 16 says, is to hate sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. And so I have some other notes here for you. He says, don't be afraid. God's come to test you. By the way, God is in the business of testing us, not so he'll know what we're like under pressure, but so that we will have our own hearts exposed to us under that pressure. He tests us. He shows us who we really are. Then we become disillusioned with us. And then we see how great Jesus is. That's the gospel. And so Psalm chapter 19, verse 7 says, the law of God is perfect and it converts the soul. That's what it's meant to do. John chapter 14, verse 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then in Galatians, in chapter 3, in verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions until Jesus, the seed, should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then certainly, excuse me, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, which the law, when you broke it, could only bring death, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has been confined under all sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor or our school marm to bring us to Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And so all that to say, their response ended with them doing what? They got further away. But what 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as Jesus is, so are we in this world. 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. So if you're here today and you have torment because of fear, but he who fears is not yet been perfected in love. We love him because he first loved us and we see that on the cross. And so, Father God, we thank you for the cross that reunites us with the love of God. We thank you for your love in delivering us from slavery and those who enslaved us. We thank you for deliverance from Satan and his, uh, and his intentions to keep us in bondage. But we also, Lord, as we see what your righteous requirements are, to be holy in your sight. We thank you for Jesus, who for the joy set before him suffered the cross, despising the shame, and then he rose from the dead and he now lives to intercede for us, praying the Father to send the Holy Spirit to empower us to live a life that's pleasing to you and gives glory to your name. And so I pray this morning, if there's anybody here that uh, feels condemned because of the law, help them to know that that condemnation is not of Christ, but it's actually conviction that's leading us to Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for salvation. Thank you for revealing our hearts to us. And thank you for making it all possible through the one obedient life that we're aware of. All these laws were broken against Jesus. He never sinned once. And yet... On the cross, he took the punishment for every law he never broke because he loves us. So, Father, we celebrate that. And as we take communion this morning, help us to really ruminate on what you have done and the love that's been lavished upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.